and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters here on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, July 7th, we are starting a short journey through a variety of psalms. Having just finished the book of Acts, we've heard how often the apostles used the psalms as their sermon texts to proclaim Christ crucified and risen for repentance and forgiveness. Before that, we studied the gospel according to St. Luke, and there we heard Jesus say that the things written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms had to be fulfilled. Starting today and going through the end of July, we will be taking a look at the psalms we encountered in both Luke and Acts, as well as other selected psalms, in order that we might both hear and pray God's word, all of which sharpens our faith in the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. To get us started, today we will be studying Psalm chapter 2. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Tim Seleska. Dr. Seleska serves as Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Ministerial Formation at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He is also the author of the Concordia Commentary on Psalms 1-50 to in the Concordia Commentary series from CPH. Dr. Seleska, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to studying Psalm 2, as well as finding out some just introductory information on the book of Psalms. It's such a, a wide variety of, of texts in here. I'm looking forward to, to hearing some of your insights. So to, to get us started, what what is a psalm? So I really like to emphasize that the Psalms are poetry and read them as sort of a distinct genre from narrative and from prophecy and the New Testament, of course, epistles and gospels. So we have our own way of reading them. And when you see that they're poetry, then there are certain things that you expect to get from them or expect to see in them. And a certain way of reading poetry that's a little distinct from the way you would read narrative, for example. And I think that's an important part of appreciating why there's poetry in the Bible and what the Psalms give us. So what are some of those features of poetry, that distinct way of reading the Psalms that we need to be aware of? And, and maybe even, because this is Hebrew poetry right. as opposed to, say, English poetry, right. what are some of those distinctives? So I would just go from general specific, and then um, I'll let you ask any more questions that you want. But notice that when we read narrative, we basically go from one clause to one sentence through a story. And so we're kind of led to go from beginning to end. Um, and uh, we expect a plot to develop, you know, characters to develop. I mean, same thing, you know, when you read the Joseph story in Genesis, it starts out with the characters and then you different plots uh, and the story kind of comes to its conclusion. Uh, with poetry, though, 
Notice that there is not this straight line or developing of a plot, usually, that you see in a psalm. So what you have is one line followed by another line, followed by another line, followed by another line. And what we do in poetry in general and the Psalms in specific, what I encourage people to do is to read one line and kind of stop and ask yourself what that line means. Go on to the next line and read it. And then you have to ask yourself, how does that line compare to the first line? How is it related to the first line? Or even how you begin to notice, are there word plays between the two lines? Um, are there other uh, connections between the two? We don't read narrative that way. If a word repeats itself in sentence one and sentence three, we don't stop and look at how those words are related. But that's part of the way poetry works. Um, and so really we're always reading a line, stopping and going back as we go through a psalm. And you can begin to see patterns, not only in their thoughts, but in their word usage, uh, the way the words are arranged, uh, different figures of speech start to jump out at you, all of those kinds of things. And so it makes the experience of reading a psalm a little different than reading a narrative. It's kind of like thinking of the psalm as the beads on a necklace. So notice that each bead is independent and yet it makes a whole necklace. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, if you have a Christian plaque or a Christian symbol or something, you'll very often have one verse of a psalm because that verse is kind of complete in itself. And yet uh, we have to always remember that that verse is part of a larger context of verses as well. So that would be kind of a general introduction of just the distinction between that and the way we'd read a narrative or we'd read an epistle, for, for example. You know, as we read Paul's epistles, we're looking for instruction or for encouragement or something. And it's a, sometimes a developing argument over a larger or smaller section of texts. And you don't necessarily have that same thing in Psalms, mm. if that makes well, sense. Yeah, it it does, and there's there's so many things that I think we could talk about from from that. What I want to focus on the idea of context, though, as you said, the idea of beads on a necklace that you've got the individual beads, but it does go together. One of the things when when we study narratives on sharper irons, like we try to set the context. Mm -hmm. So, right. I mean, how do we do that with with the psalms, uh, and and not only with what's within the psalm itself, but even like. There is a narrative, even if it's not in the book of Psalms, there is a narrative around many of these Psalms. How do we, how do we pay attention to context right, in the book of Psalms? Good question. Um, so first of all, there's only 13 Psalms that have historical background information in the title. You know, you can see that in Psalm 3, for example, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Um, there's only like 13 of those, and most of them refer to events that happened in the books of Samuel. So you can kind of uh, see the context in which the psalm was written, uh, okay, uh, or the occasion of its being written. Um, but we have to be a little careful about that because sometimes uh, David will maybe write in a certain occasion, but... Um, he may be reflecting on something related. To, well, let me back up and put it this way. 
okay? So you got 13 Psalms that have these historical introductions. So the great majority of the 150 do not, all right? Um, and I think that's deliberate because the truth that poetry gets at by not having the historical context becomes more universal in nature. So that the truths that the Psalms talk about cross historical and cultural boundaries. Um, so for example, when a person uh, is suffering and the Psalmist cries out to God, people across time and space and place and circumstance can begin to relate to what the Psalmist is saying. Um, and so I think it's deliberately, uh, it's important that we don't try to figure out the exact time and place in which the author David or whoever else the Psalm author might have been uh, when he wrote the Psalm. Um, and it, that, that's why so many people can relate to the Psalm on so many levels, no matter their place in life. Uh, and again, uh, that's part of the beauty of the Psalms, I think. Um, saying that then, I don't know if this answers your question another way. Think about a, a hymn, all right? Notice how our hymns draw on the story of Scripture, and in order to understand them, uh, you have to kind of hook the, hook the song back up to the story, and they assume a knowledge of the story. I always tell my students this. Take this line, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. When a Christian sings that who's grown up in the Christian church, almost reflective, reflexively, you know what it means. Uh, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Doesn't sound strange at all because we know the story that's behind all those terms and the rich language. You don't even think about it. But think about how strange that line would seem to someone who has never read the Bible, doesn't know the Christian story. What are you talking about? crown a lamb who sits on the throne does it see see what i'm saying right so right. For it sounds a, like animal yeah farm it or sounds something. like what what are you talking about crown him with many crowns who the lamb upon his throne what what's this lamb doing see notice when you say lamb and throne that evokes um so many passages of scripture in both the old and new testament and both uh from narrative texts gospel texts, epistle texts, I mean, from beginning to end. Those are huge metaphors in, in the Christian language that the songwriter is making use of. And of course, hymn after hymn does that. So does the Psalms. I encourage readers then, as we're reading a Psalm, you have to self-consciously hook it back up to the larger narrative of which it is a part. So when you read, for example, the Lord is my shepherd, when you start to see where else in the Old Testament that metaphor is used, it becomes one of those metaphors that is um, very uh, powerful for describing the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egypt and from Babylon and bringing them uh, safely to the promised land. So you see the Lord calling himself Israel's shepherd in books starting from Genesis uh, other historical psalms to the book of Ezekiel, even the way Moses describes God's uh, dealings with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, for example. And so um, 
that metaphor is not used just because there are a lot of shepherds and sheep in David's time, but it's hooked up to this larger story. And that has implications for why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, for example. Yeah. He's not using that, that metaphor arbitrarily. Um, and so, uh, again, psalm after psalm, I think that it's a better practice to see the background of the texts from which psalms are drawn, where they come from. Yeah, that, that was very helpful, Dr. Seleska. Th- thank you so much for that. So again, we could we could spend all the time on introductory matters, yeah. but I, I so I, but I do have a couple more that I, I do sure. think are important yeah, yeah. with with the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are, are sometimes called the prayer book of the Bible, yes. and and this is also or the hymn book of the Bible right. sometimes, but this is also God's word to us. So can you talk a little bit about that that dual nature that this is God's word sure. to us, but it's also the words that we speak to Him in prayer? Oh, very good. So. Uh, Church fathers, and I think Bonhoeffer uh, bring this up too, that the Psalms are unique in that they're both God's word to us and our words to God. And that's a special dynamic uh, that, um, that has shown itself in various ways throughout the life of the church and the use of the Psalms in the church. Um, I, I do have a, <laughs> I hate to plug the commentary, but there is a big section uh, in the, the introduction about that. Um, so notice that uh, when you look at the New Testament, for example, you, you were mentioning the books of Luke, Luke and Acts. Notice that they generally use the Psalms in a God's word to us direction. Mm. So they will use Psalm 2, for example, which we're going to talk about as being fulfilled in Jesus. All right. This is God's word to us. Um, or they'll use it. Paul uses uh, a whole string of psalm verses in Romans 3, that whole chain of psalm verses, to um, come to the conclusion that all of us have sinned and and come short of the glory of God. So they'll use the psalm in a God's word to us direction to make doctrinal points uh, within this uh, scheme of, of fulfillment, you know, typology fulfillment or prophecy fulfillment, um, that kind of thing. But um, remember, too, that there's this our words to God. So even in the New Testament, um, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom as you teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So you see how that dynamic is both God's word to us, but also our word to God. And so throughout the history of the church, the Psalms have been part of our worship service and prayer life, both individually and as a community to God. Um, We say or sing Psalms in church. Uh, Psalm verses form parts of hymns and liturgical pieces. Um, You know, there's that dynamic as well. And uh, so... um, I think it's, that's a great dynamic because I think Bonhoeffer makes a point. We learn to speak to God because God first speaks to us. So God speaks to us in the Psalms and we use the language of the Psalms in various ways to speak to God. Um, mm. And, and it, it does expand the definition of what we mean, I think, by prayer and speaking to God when we take that dynamic seriously. Yeah, we could we could probably do a whole episode on on just that yeah, dynamic could, yeah. of, of the word of God in our prayer. It's it's interesting in in Acts chapter four. That's where Psalm two shows up very specifically, yeah. and 
and in Acts chapter four, the apostles are praying there. Mm-hmm. They they use Psalm two within a prayer. You know, it has to have a more doctrinal feel to it, but it's it's still within a prayer. Yes. So it's it's just a, a wonderful yes. thing. So I'm looking forward again to studying Psalm two. One one more introductory question, which which does go into kind of why we're looking at the Psalms anyways. We we see how Psalms form sermon texts. They're quoted often in the New Testament. How how in the book of Psalms? How do we see Christ? Where do we encounter him? How are we going to see our Savior in the book of Psalms? Oh man. Uh, that's a huge <laughs> question. Uh, I mean, I think in ver- in various ways, um, we start to make the connection between the voice that we hear, the voices that we hear in the Psalms, and uh, Jesus or the uh, story of salvation that we see in the New Testament. I mean, you see it quite explicitly, for example, in Psalm 2, as you said. But um, we also kind of are always reading the Psalms in the light of Christ. I mean, I guess a good example is the Lord is my shepherd, mm. but notice the reference to the Lord there. First of all, is to Yahweh of the old Testament, who's the shepherd, not just or immediately to Jesus, for example, but when we hear, when we see who Jesus is and read this psalm in the light of Jesus then, and he calls himself the good shepherd, then we see the point that Jesus is trying to make with the metaphor that, oh, he's the same God uh, who led Israel in the Old Testament. And so there's those kinds of connections as well in which the psalm is not uh, a thus saith the Lord prediction or prophecy of Christ. But it, they, through their words and voices, we can begin to get a deeper understanding who, who Jesus is, or as Jesus, uh, as we think about and reflect on Jesus' work, again, Psalm 22 is another one of those. We can see in the voices and words and experience of the psalmist, the shadows or foretaste of what happens in Jesus. Uh, I guess that's as general a way I can answer your question without looking at specific verses as I can. <laughs> well, and I think Psalm 2 will give us an opportunity yeah. to see how how Christ is preached here in, in Psalm 2. Yeah. It's going to be some some opportunity to put that into practice very specifically with Psalm 2. So that is the the psalm before us. Dr. Seleska, what, as we prepare to, to read and pray this psalm, uh, what should we be looking for just to, by way of introduction before we go ahead and take a look at the text? Sure. So what we should be looking for is different voices in the psalm. So one of the challenges of the psalm is to ask yourself who's speaking in the psalm. Um, uh, another challenge will be, um, I think, to try to make figure out the, the context in which the psalm should be read, especially you kind of are faced with that right with the first couple verses of the psalm. Um, and let's see what else um i think as you kind of look at the separate pieces of the psalm another challenge will be to see how they fit together as a whole okay all right well let's go ahead and and read psalm 2 read and pray psalm 2 as a as a whole and then begin to as you said go go line by line seeing how things relate seeing what this psalm communicates to us so psalm 2 why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is Psalm 2. All right, so Dr. Seleska, how maybe how would how do you structure this psalm? You talk about going line by line and, and fitting pieces together. How how is this psalm structured? All right. Well, we could depends, Tim, on how deep you want to get into this, but I will get us into deep and you can draw me out as you want. <laughs> Sounds good. And usually uh, the way I do it is to start looking at things that may puzzle me or interest me. Um, and so the first thing notice. Uh, that you see about the psalm. Again, we can talk about the language of the psalm. That first line, why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? I think that word rage is not the best translation. Um, Mm. I think that it should be translated something like assemble. There's an Aramaic word that means that, and there's a lot of Aramaic features to this psalm. Uh, Your readers, listeners probably aren't interested in that. But notice that it makes more sense with the second line. It's not that, because when you hear the word rage, you think that there, that there's this mob that's just hugely angry. But the scene that I see here is mostly the idea of nations. Notice it says nations and people and kings taking counsel together, plotting, conspiring kind of thing. All right, in, in rebellion, Uh, against the Lord and his anointed. So I don't know if rage puts us in the best direction right out of the bat. Okay. Mm. I can leave that for further discussion, but notice the the ESV does suggest, I notice in the, in the footnote that it it suggests nations, they suggest noisily assemble. Yeah. So it's trying to get uh, both of those kind of meanings in, I suppose. Um, And uh, uh, so, the first question I ask myself is, well, what historical situation is behind this? Or how is this true? Or where is this true? In what way is this true that you have nations and people? And then it goes to the rulers, kings, setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, I mean, when you think of Old Testament history, you know, you can think of probably several instances in which um, other kingdoms were set against Israel, right? Uh, You know, think about Canaanites, for example, um, and the book of Joshua Judges. I mean, you can think about Babylon and Egypt, um, Assyria, and all of those kinds of things. Um, So uh, it deliberately keeps you from any more historical specificity than that. All right. Um, but uh, so so if I kind of start there, 
and just kind of reflect on um, what those three verses give me. All right. So again, why do the nations, let's just say, why do the nations assemble and why do people plot in vain? Okay. Notice that the sympathies of the speaker of the psalm are already on the other side because he says they're doing it in vain. Okay. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Okay. So this is what I always challenge you, and I'll ask you this question. Do you see the tension between verses 1 and 2 and verse 3? I'm putting oh, you on man. the spot here. I know. And I won't let I you. Know. I don't want a big space here. So, well, I mean, what what I see in, in the, I appreciate what you've done in terms of setting a picture. You've you've got this council of nations, peoples, kings, mm-hmm. and and the picture in my mind is that this is what I what I see that somehow they they seem to think that they are being enslaved mm-hmm. by the Lord and His anointed, mm-hmm. or somehow being being held in a place they don't want to be, mm-hmm. and they burst their bonds apart. So I don't know that I. I guess it follows to me. I'm not seeing okay. a tension, so, or maybe I'm not. No, yeah. So here's what I mean, uh, and it's kind of not obvious. But notice that, uh, as even in English, you can kind of see this: that um, it looks as if the nations have this this freedom. Mm. Okay, so they're they okay. they're counseling together. They're you know, it it gives you this picture of kings in this quotes war room plotting. Uh, and it looks like they got a lot of power. Uh, even, I mean, I like to, again, make this point. Uh, notice that all the syntax and the verbiage is on the side of the kings of the earth. They got all the verbs, counsel, uh, they take counsel together, they stand together, you know, blah, blah. There's like four verbs in there. Against the Lord, against his anointed gets no verbs. Uh, all the syntactical complexity is in verses one through the first half of verse two. And then all you got against the Lord and against his anointed, that saying is not in the text, obviously. Hmm. Okay. So the, it, the first two verses make you think that the kings have all this freedom and power. But notice verse three, the very things they say undercuts that. Because it says, Let's, uh, let us burst their bonds apart. Like you said, they perceive themselves as being in slavery. All right. Um, they want to get out from under the rule of the anointed and um, the Lord. So notice that verse 3 takes us right into the actual war room. And you hear the words of the kings and rulers of the earth saying, let's break their bonds. All right. So you have to ask yourself, um, well, when are all these powerful nations actually feeling themselves in bondage to the Lord's anointed? Okay, so uh, well, let's let's pick that question up on the other yeah. side of the break, okay. Doctor. Because it's, it's you're, very you're important. Listening. Yeah, it's very important for. I'm sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, let's let's let's. We do need to take our yep. break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. Studying Psalm 2 with Dr. Tim Seleska. We'll be right back. Stick around.
know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 7th. We're studying Psalm 2 with the Reverend Dr. Tim Seleska. He's professor of exegetical theology and dean of ministerial formation at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Seleska, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 3, what the kings and rulers, the nations in their war room, what are they saying? You were talking about the context. I interrupted you. Keep keep giving us more on this, yeah. this first, so first stanza. Notice that the first three verses are about power and who has it and who doesn't have it, all right? So when you think of kings of the earth and nations and people, we normally think of, of think people that are very powerful, that can kind of do what they want. And notice the impression is that these people can do what they want, that they actually have power to assemble together and um, plan and carry out a rebellion. And then in verse three, that, that initial impression is undercut by what they say. So they give this impression that they're under control of uh, the Lord and his anointed. All right. So think about this as a psalm about power, which it really all is. And again, this is a good example of how we read psalms differently. Not every psalm is about power like this. Notice, I always have a discussion with my students about this. It kind of goes on for a while how this psalm divides the lines of power. And I start out by asking them, when you think of nations and power, how do we conceive of it? What is the world in which we experience? And usually then, after some discussion, the answer comes, well, we think of many different lines of power. Some nations have more power, than others. We have all this hierarchy built up and we have all this competition between nations. Um, so right now we have this terrible conflict between Russia and Ukraine and therefore the various other countries are being drawn into it. There's the threat uh, from our perspective of China. There's the threat uh, in the Middle East. You know, all these countries and rulers vying for power, either trying to get their freedom or get uh, more territory for themselves or they're under attack, you know, all these kinds of things. That's the way we look at the kingdoms of this world. And as a result of that, if we as Christians get too wrapped up in that, we tend to get very afraid. Oh, our nation is going to hell in a hand, hand basket. Oh, what's happening to us? Uh, you know, uh, because of all these nations and rulers and threats and everything that's happening. 
the psalm challenges us to take a very different perspective on power and who has it. Because there is only one dividing line of power in the psalm. On one side of it are all the nations of the earth and the rulers of the earth. On the other side is this kingdom, notice, um, against the Lord and against his anointed. So notice, uh, I, I, again, I could talk a long time about that line, but it doesn't say against, anointed, uh, against the Lord and against his king, against the Lord and against his shepherd, against the Lord and against uh, his some other term, but it uses anointed uh, because remember when uh, one of the Davidic kings was put on the throne, he was anointed. All right. Mm -hmm. So it, it um, is referring to the king of Israel by this particular name. And you have to ask yourself, why is he calling him the anointed here? And I think it's because it wants to really stress the relationship between the Lord and his anointed. And it becomes important in the psalm. So right off the bat, the psalm challenges me to rethink the lines of power. And I think that's really important for Christians because we forget that there's a kingdom that uh, stands over and against all other kingdoms of the world. And notice then that um, kingdoms, whenever they refuse to acknowledge the Lord and his anointed, Whenever they think they have power, they set themselves against actually the king of kings and the Lord himself and are in rebellion against him. All right. Mm. So at the very least, we as Christians, because we live in the culture we do and because we forget about who's really in charge, yeah. um, we forget about this other kingdom mm. that uh, yeah. actually rules and controls all things. And so... The psalm throughout, you will see, is about that power and who has it and what it means for us. And so when you start to approach the psalm that way, it's not just this ancient piece of history, but it begins to remind us of some very relevant and powerful truths about who we are as God's people mm. um, and challenges us. Hey, am I getting church and state all mixed up here? Am I putting my hopes in one uh, political party or another? Am I um, forgetting who's really in charge and trying to uh, uh, push for earthly rules or earthly kings? That actually puts you in rebellion against uh, the one true king. If that makes any this sense. Is, I don't know if I'm... No, it, it does. This is, this is one reason why, why I've, I've tried to be more conscientious about referring to to what Christ has done, not only we talk about, you know, Jesus, he died and rose for me. And I, I like to add that he ascended mm -hmm. because I, I think that really gets to what, what you're talking about, who really is King. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think, I think when you look at this text in, in Acts chapter four, you see the apostles recognizing precisely what you're talking about in, in the midst of the persecution that they're, they're receiving, they recognize who truly is King and, and use that in the prayer. So let's, but let's, let's stay in the Psalm, Psalm two. So, We've got the nations and peoples who are plotting on the one hand, seeming like they have power, but actually not right. in what their own words right. say. In verse four, then we get a we get to look into the heavens and, and see the one sitting there, the one who truly has power. What's he doing? What okay. do we see next? So, yeah. So uh, as we move from verse three, just remember that 
so here's how I translate verse three or understand it. Let us burst their bonds apart. Just to be clear that whenever a king or a president or a ruler is not acknowledging uh, that uh, Yahweh is their, his Lord, okay? Doesn't acknowledge this king. That's an act of rebellion. That is the desire to break control. So uh, every, every president that doesn't worship the true God, every president uh, or nation that uh, doesn't seek the Lord's will and give him honor, they're in rebellion. That's how I'm interpreting those words, let us break their bonds. It's paramount to saying, we don't want you as our king, Lord. Okay. So we move then from the earthly throne room, all right, to the throne room of heaven. So notice that the picture that this psalm gives us is of a transcendent, all-powerful God. And again, keep in mind that Psalms can differ in that. Sometimes you get an intimate picture of God, a God close at hand, a God who is your friend. Uh, here, God is pictured as the powerful one, the transcendent one. And notice it um, actually pictures him sitting on a throne. See, so you have the contrast of the kings of the earth all doing their thing. And what uh, the king of the world does is sit in heaven over all this and notice he laughs okay and uh again it's very interesting how it, it gets more specific and intense so the one sitting in heaven laughs uh and then says adonai mocks them hmm. so notice laughing is more general mocking has a certain edge to it it's a little more specific so he goes from general to specific and then i love this line then he will speak to them in his wrath and in his fury, he will terrify them. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So you have the psalmist going to the throne room of heaven now where that king is laughing at all the plans that the other kings of the world are making. So think about God sitting in heaven and he sees all the rulers of our world, all, uh, you know, our president, the president of Russia, the president of Ukraine, president, you know, the ruler of China, all of these uh, powerful, powerful people making all their plans. And they do have power from a human perspective, right? God's just laughing, mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his wrath. Now, Tim, let me ask you this question. What are you anticipating is going to come if you've never read this psalm? And it says... He's going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What do you expect well, I mean, to come next? What kind of language? I mean, sort of like this is the the condemnation. The sentence is about to be passed yeah. to the here. Here are the rebels, and now here's your sentence yeah. for thinking you could rebel against me. So you're going to he, yeah. So when God speaks in his wrath, I mean, again, when you hook this part of the psalm up to the larger parts of Scripture, it we start to interpret it like oh. Uh, he's going to condemn them. Uh, when God speaks in his wrath, mountains melt, uh, forests are leveled, uh, the storm comes, uh, there's terror, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, see, it's really important to notice that because that's the next lines of the psalm uh, go a totally different direction. They're surprising. Right. They don't meet that expectation. So one of the things that I do as I read a psalm is I always ask myself, okay, what I am I 
What's going to come next? What am I anticipating and why? And do I get it or not? And sometimes you can be surprised at the move that the psalm makes. And he does it really, really interesting here. Because notice that's not what you get. He speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. And again, ESV irritatingly adds the word saying. <laughs> um, okay. Here's, so here's, notice you have to look at the speaking voice in the next verse. As for me, I said, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's speaking that? Notice in ESV, it's in, in uh, quotes. Right. I, I've always understood that to be the Lord right. speaking from heaven. So notice it's God speaking. Okay, now follow the logic of the psalm. What kind of speech is this? What kind of speech is it? Okay, I mean, according to verse 5. This is the Lord speaking in his wrath, it, terrifying correct. in his fury. This is his word of wrath. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Stop right there. What do you make of that? Maybe I'm... Well... <laughs> isn't it surprising? That's not a word of... How is that a word of wrath? It doesn't sound like a word of it wrath. It doesn't You're sound right. like a word of wrath. Okay? And notice that it's not verbal speech it's an action hmm. as for me so his word of wrath is against the nation is what putting his king on zion right hmm. i'm going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them and how's he going to do it by setting my king on zion hmm. so yeah. the king on zion becomes the word of wrath against all the nations. All right. See, and I'm I'm just gonna have to because I'm and maybe it's because I'm just thinking through what else is coming in the psalm. But but by the end of the psalm, then this one who is the king is going to be like there's a there's an invitation that that transforms what's happening here in wrath to a, a word of grace, like serve the Lord with fear so that you don't have the Lord's wrath. Okay, so yeah. Maybe I'm thinking too far well, ahead. You're, you're probably, you are <laughs> jumping ahead uh, because there's a lot. We've also only got there. 12 minutes yeah, left on your Okay. So. All right. So, but notice what I've said. So think about it in the historical situation in which this Psalm is given that whenever the D Davidic king, think about, so he's challenging you to think about the theological implications of whenever the Davidic king was put on the throne. Okay. Mm. We always think about the Davidic king in terms of God's promise of an eternal kingdom, right? Second uh, Samuel right. 7 is a huge passage for interpreting Psalm 2, and we, we don't have time to get to that. But that's what God gave his promise that um, in the descendant of David, he was going to establish a kingdom that would never end. And every time a Davidic king came to the throne, God was telling them, I'm going to keep my promise. And to the extent that that king brought prosperity and justice to the people, that kingdom uh, became more visible. So in the time of Solomon, you will see uh, his reign talked about in these kind of utopian terms. And Solomon even says, he thanks God when he builds the temple, that God kept the promise he made to his father. And yet we find out after Solomon died, 
that there was some seamy parts to his kingdom. So it's kind of like, yes, now God's keeping his promise and yet there's more to come. And so the people would always look at it that way. So here the psalmist is giving you this other theological perspective mm. on the meaning of the Davidic king to the nations. Think of it as my word of wrath mm. against you. Yeah. Now in the historical reality notice, Israel, yes, sometimes did conquer his enemy, but very often the reality of the Davidic king vis-a-vis -vis the other nations was deeply hidden because Israel went into exile in Babylon, for example. Sometimes they were besieged by their enemies and overcome by them. Um, how could this be true given that visibly it didn't look at all apparent? How is God going to make this come true? So notice that the psalm is challenging us to have this perspective on the Davidic king um, and the um, workings of power that we don't normally consider. All right. So since we only have 10 minutes left, notice who speaks next. All right. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who's speaking there? Now we've got the anointed good. speaking. Very good. See, so notice... We have this switch of speakers really quickly. We go from God to now the anointed is talking about the decree. Now, I'm assuming that that decree is what God just said. Whenever whenever uh, the king comes to the throne and God sets him on a throne, he does that by the decree of the Lord, right? This is so that when Samuel anointed David, he's doing this on, on God's command um, and so on. All right. So he's telling you this is. So notice what he says in verse seven, the anointed one, he's giving you the significance of uh, my, when the, when the anointed one is set on the throne, here's the significance of it. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Okay. So in other words, when um, the king, when God sets his king on the throne, when the king is anointed to be the king, what does that mean theologically before, as far as the relationship between the Lord and the king? Mm. Think of the king as my son. Okay. Yeah. When I anointed him that day, today I've begotten you in, in history. Think of that day of anointment as establishing this new relationship, father, son. Now, why is that important in the Old Testament? Because the son inherits everything from his father, right? Mm. And that becomes an important part of, again, I, I'm always trying to read the psalm out of the larger story of both the Old Testament and finally the New Testament. And um, again, that language is taken from 2 Samuel 7, um, in which uh, the... Um, Davidic king and the relationship to the Davidic king is spoken of in these terms of father-son. So it's not just arbitrary that uh, the psalmist puts that language in. So the significant, so he's giving you the significance of the anointing of the king to the nations. Think of it as a word of wrath to you, O nations. And then he says to the king, here's the significance of it. You're my son. Okay. And what does that mean? Notice the next verse follows up. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, so that's why it's a word of wrath against the nations, because the Lord who rules all things 
has put his king in Zion. And all the king has to do is ask and the nations are his. And so that's why it goes on to that next language. Um, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So uh, again, all the power of the Lord is through, uh, is given to the uh, earthly king, the Davidic king. Okay. Mm -hmm. And all the king has to do is ask. Now, in the, I'll go back and talk about the New Testament kind of perspective on this in a second, but just to get through the rest of the Psalms. So therefore, verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. So notice it becomes this warning to the king, kings. And this is the voice of the psalmist yeah, now in verse probably 10. the voice of the psalmist. Uh, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words... Um, you better realize who your true master is. When I when it says kiss the sun, I take that to be like, you know, you kiss the, the when someone's coming before the king, you kiss his hand or uh, something to show your, your uh, obedience and humility before him. Notice why? Because lest he be angry and you perish on his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Now there's something else that cool that happens in verse 12, but we probably don't have time for that. Um, we can talk about that another day. I mean, it's really cool, right. but uh, anyway, anyway, the point to be made is that um, notice that Acts 4, Peter interprets the first part of the psalm in terms of Jesus' passion and death, and Paul in Acts 13 interprets the today I've begotten you in terms of Jesus' resurrection and uh, then later, as you mentioned earlier in our program, uh, the ascension of Jesus to, to God's right hand. All right. Here's the important point to make. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter cut off the ear of Malchus. And what did Jesus say? He put the ear back on him and he said, you know, if I wanted to, I could call down a legion uh, and rescue myself. But he didn't, right? He didn't ask. Uh, remember when he was on the cross, uh, the uh, thief mocked him, hey, uh, if you're the son of God, deliver yourself. He said, you know, again, all he had to do is ask his father and uh, God certainly would have come. But he didn't ask. See, and that's kind of the point that we have to remember as God's people uh, that Jesus in his death and resurrection came to seek and to save the lost. Now he sits at the right hand of God. And in this time before he comes again, he asks us to proclaim the gospel to the nations because he hasn't asked yet. Um, he asks us to minister to those who are lost. Um, but one day he's going to ask, and then he's going to come down uh, as both judge and savior of us. And so the interesting thing that you will see is that those verses in um, verses 8 and especially 9, you'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Those verses are alluded to or quoted uh, almost exclusively in the book of Revelation, in which it talks about God's second coming into judgment. That's when God is going to reveal, uh, he, when Jesus is going to come in power to judge 
both the quick and the dead. Now, I've given you just a quick summary of how I'm kind of reading the psalm, but I think it, it makes some really important points as to how the psalm is relevant to us and how we think about power and how it's exercised and what it means for us as God's people who are living in this time and place on this side of the resurrection as we wait for Jesus to come again. Mm. No, that, that's all so helpful, Dr. Seleska. With, with just about, we've got about two minutes here. And, and thinking about then this psalm, not only is God's word to us, <clears throat> but also our word to him in prayer. How might we use Psalm 2 as a prayer for us, as both as individual Christians and as a Christian church? So I think that uh, as we pray it, we uh, it, it will remind me uh, of where the real power lies and to trust in God to do what he had promised through his son, um, that uh, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom and um, that um, uh, his promises are sure in Jesus. And while the anointed one is a word of warning to all other nations and all other powers, to us, it's a word of grace and salvation. And that's the message that I ask God to form my heart and lips to share with people uh, in the meantime, in the between times. Mm. The Reverend Dr. Tim Seleska is Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Ministerial Formation at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, also the author of the commentary on Psalms 1-50 to in the Concordia Commentary Series from CPH, helping us today with Psalm 2. Dr. Seleska, thank you so much for being our guest today. Very welcome. Good to talk to you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Psalm 2, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.